<clears throat> now this is recording. RTI International Center for Forensic Science presents Just Science. Welcome to Just Science, a podcast for justice professionals and anyone interested in learning more about forensic science, innovative technology, current research, and actionable strategies to improve the criminal justice system. In episode six of our Strengthening the Forensic Workforce season, Just Science sat down with Dr. Brooke Camrith, a professor of forensic science at the University of New Haven, and Dr. Tatiana Trejos, an assistant professor in the Department of Forensic and Investigative Science at West Virginia University, to discuss career paths for individuals trained in trace evidence analytical methods. Trace evidence analysts are tasked with extracting information from small quantity samples like glass, paint, fibers, and gunshot residue to shed light on what possibly occurred at a crime scene. These analysts utilize chemical, microscopic, and physical comparisons of evidence to make conclusions and provide investigative leads. Listen along as Dr. Camerith and Dr. Trejos discuss available collegiate courses such as microscopy and testimony practices for those interested in trace evidence analysis and what it takes to succeed. This episode is funded by the National Institute of Justice's Forensic Technology Center of Excellence. Here's your host, Gabby Diemma. Hello and welcome to Just Science. I'm your host, Gabby Diemo, with the Forensic Technology Center of Excellence, a program of the National Institute of Justice. Throughout this season, Just Science has been discussing forensic science programs and NIJ-funded research at universities accredited by the Forensic Science Education Programs Accreditation Commission, or FEPAC. Here to guide us in our discussion is Dr. Brooke Camrath, a professor of forensic science at the University of New Haven and assistant director of the Henry C. Lee Institute of Forensic Science, and Dr. Tatiana Trejos, an assistant professor in the Department of Forensic and Investigative Science at West Virginia University. Brooke, Tatiana, welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you on the show. Thank you so much. Thank you, Gabby. Brooke, I'd like to hear a little bit more about your professional background and your current roles. Uh, I'm a professor of forensic science at the University of New Haven and uh, the assistant director of the Henry C. Lee Institute. So at the University of New Haven, I teach courses in criminalistics and trace and chemical analysis. I teach both undergraduate and graduate classes. And then at the uh, Henry C. Lee Institute, we do a range of different activities from presenting webinars and trainings for police officers, as well as forensic scientists, and give courses for all ages from high school students through professionals in the field uh, on a range of different forensic science topics and areas. Excellent. And Tatiana, tell us a little bit more about your professional background and current role at West Virginia University. So I was a forensic practitioner for various years before joining academia. I had a Master of Science in Forensic Science and also earned a PhD in Chemistry. So being able to join academia really put together my two passions in chemistry and forensics. And I have been teaching uh, forensic chemistry in the last six years here at West Virginia University. I teach at the undergraduate, master, and PhD programs in various courses that deals with uh, instrumentation that we use in forensic chemistry for the undergraduate students. Trace evidence, I teach a class at the undergraduate and also a class at the graduate level in trace evidence that has also a heavy practical component and laboratory. So we do everything from crime scene and breaking things at the crime scene to, to study the transfers of, of trace evidence to 
analysis in the laboratory and then presentation in more quorum. And at the PhD level, I teach a class on research design that teach students on how to apply the different experimental designs in statistical analysis for doing interpretation in various disciplines of forensic science. My background is chemistry. I was chemistry first and then kind of discovered that love of forensic science as a way to apply that chemistry education. You know, the draw for me was the application of chemistry, but it does have such unique problems that are different from analytical chemistry or any other scientific discipline. So the the fact that it's analytical chemistry plus some really challenging problems that, you know, the, not even just the small size of the sample, but the degradation and where it could have come from, it just makes it just the most fascinating form of problem solving that I think we can do. I agree with Brooke. I think one of the things that I really love of what I do is that, you know, we are forensic chemists, but we have to deal with so many other disciplines on a daily basis so that, you know, we have that continuous feedback from many other disciplines, from computer science, from statistics, from medicine, from physics. And because if, if there's something that we have learned over the years is that forensic science problems are not solved with one person or one discipline. It's, you know, the more multidisciplinary we become, the better we can address those challenges. So diving a little bit into today's discussion, I wanted to see if one or both of you would like to briefly define for our listeners what is trace evidence analysis and what types of evidence do trace analysts typically work with? So it's interesting because um, the term trace has been used uh, historically for a very long time in terms of the use of the word trace as a noun. So in forensic science, we use trace mainly as an adjective, so trace evidence, and usually it describes materials evidence that has a small size to it or is in a small concentration. However, when you think about traces in their original intent from Locard or Kirk or some of the original pioneers in our field, it's more a vestige of a past event. So something that was left behind, like no trace was left um, or it vanished without a trace. So when I think about traces I and I teach about traces, I generally talk about it and teach in that vein as fingerprints are traces, DNA is traces. And you'll see that more and more people are using that term of DNA traces or finger mark traces, especially in Europe, it's becoming it's a little bit of a, a thing called traceology that's happening. But when we really talk about trace evidence, we're talking about smaller sized evidence that gets transferred. So another common term would be transfer evidence. So as trace analysts or forensic chemists, what types of skills or quote unquote tools in the toolbox do you need that might be less prevalent in other forensic disciplines? So I think a trace analyst must have an outstanding attention to detail and critical thinking. Uh, there are many, many different skills, but I think those two are very important in, a, in the area of trace evidence that should be the kind of person that is okay without routines uh, because every case is different and requires special consideration during the daily decision-making process. And also, we often have to apply a multitude of analytical tools, uh, beginning with microscopic examinations and continuing with various uh, instrumental techniques to combine all the relevant physical and chemical information from the material to make often inferences about their origin. 
So in my opinion, trace examiner need to have excellent analytical and instrumental skills as well in the laboratory because of the type of nature of cases that we deal with. I agree 100%. Both of your universities have amazing FEPAC accredited forensic science programs, and I would love to hear more about them and and the sorts of courses and things that they offer. So uh, University of New Haven is, has longstanding FEPAC accreditation. And I think ultimately what that provides for our students is confidence that they're getting uh, coursework and content that will lead them to success success in forensic science or other, other careers. And then classes that they take are your biology, chemistry. So they take organic chemistry, physics, calculus. I mean, it's Forensic science is a science, and so all FEPAC-accredited programs require hard sciences um, as the fundamental basis for understanding this and being able to evaluate any part of forensic evidence. And then we have courses in physical methods. Uh, That's the first laboratory class our students have where they're uh, learning microscopy and fingerprints and question documents, firearms, um, so more of the the pattern evidences. But uh, microscopy is thrown in there as well because it is so fundamental, and so it's uh, we teach it first. Uh, the students in our, our our university then go on to a forensic biology class, which covers the body fluid and forensic serology all through DNA. And then the third required class uh, in the series would be forensic chemistry, and that will uh, involve both the chemical analysis of traces such as fibers and paint, um, as well as drugs and toxicology. We also have a required crime scene uh, investigation class. Uh, we have a, a really nice crime scene house. Uh, so the, the students are educated in a variety of different skills from photography and note-taking. And then they also have the opportunity to take restricted electives, which are higher level forensic science courses in things uh, such as forensic microscopy, toxicology, drug chemistry, um, but we also have some real specialists at our university. So uh, we have uh, an, a class in animal cruelty taught by Professor Virginia Maxwell, who is uh, using trace evidence and and variety of other forensic tools um, and applying it to, to the area of animal cruelty cases. We have a, a really nice program uh, in forensic genetic genealogy that Dr. Claire Glynn has developed, um, and so students get to take courses in that. We have uh, anthropology and taphonomy. We have a, a range of different electives on a variety of specialties that the students get to take. And then the last thing is there's a required capstone class for our undergraduates and so that they get some experiential education. And so that will either include an internship or a research project. And usually it's about a 50-50 split, although during the pandemic, it it definitely shifted more towards uh, research because of the lack of availability of internships during the pandemic. So Tatiana, tell us a little bit about uh, the program at West Virginia University. Sure. Um, so again, our programs are feedback accredited. So agree with Brooke that really brings, you know, a seal of quality to our programs and following the standards that really meet the demands for the workflows. So they have a lot of rigorous science uh, courses in the first two years at the undergrad level, math, statistics. And then in the last two years, they get a lot of heavy hands-on courses in forensic chemistry, forensic biology, and forensic examiners, which are the three major of our undergrad program. 
So forensic chemistry, they take classes about fundamentals of instrumental analysis as applied to forensic laboratories. Forensic analysis, um, we have a course on explosives and fire debris, uh, a course dedicated to drugs. And we also have a course in forensic toxicology. I teach the classes in forensic trace evidence. Uh, the biology area, they have a lot of courses focused on DNA. Uh, they also have some fun electives like entomology and chemistry of the grave, in which they get to experience all, also a lot of things related to their investigations. And in the forensic examiner mayor, they uh, develop a lot of courses in the areas of fingerprint, firearms examination. We have a large uh, ballistics laboratory including a shooting range. So they really get a lot of experiential learning as well, pattern evidence, footwear impressions. And something that also is unique in our programs is the heavy hands-on experience. So for every class that they take, they have a practical component. Um, so one of them is uh, crime scene investigations. They have to take at the undergraduate level at least two courses of crime scene in which we have like a crime scene complex. So we have four crime scene houses, each one with several levels or so like basements and different floors. So they really get to experience um, real life situations. So our professors have been experiencing crime scene for many, many years. So they get really top of them and the crime scene final exams are done in, in a day where they know that they might have been called that week, but they don't know what time or what day. So they have to be attentive. And um, often they will be called at 1 a.m., 3 a.m. in the morning, spend the whole night processing a crime scene under rain or snow in real life situations. So they really get to experience how it's like to make decisions when you are tired and cold and under pressure. We also have a photography laboratory where the students uh, learn how to process uh, the different evidence that they collect at the crime scene. And also like current testimony, I think is one of the most important classes that they receive at the undergraduate and also at the graduate level in different courses in which they get to experience uh, what it's like to be uh, presenting your opinion in front of actual judges and lawyers that, you know, will make your life difficult. So you have to be able to, to stand and to process that correctly. Uh, we also have capstone um, and internships. Uh, there is a mandatory in the internship in the last two years of the undergrad program in which they have to do about 270 hours. And this year we have placed about 78 um, students in different crime laboratories and different agencies. And some of the students uh, that want to pursue grad school, they often do their internship as a research program over the summer in order to gain those skills um, for research and really learn whether or not they, they have that research bug that will be very important for grad school. I love the idea of the on-call crime scene exam, real-life conditions. It's, it's a great way to prepare students for the workforce. I'd like to switch gears now and talk a little bit more about research and any research that you and your students have been doing with NIJ funding and, and focused on trace evidence topics. So I have a NIJ-funded research. It's a project on using particle-correlated Raman spectroscopy for soil analysis. So Raman spectroscopy 
is a technique where you're measuring the molecular chemistry, the, so you're identifying the material based on the bonds that the molecules have. And uh, with particle-correlated Raman spectroscopy, it combines image analysis so we can take an image of the particle and measure its morphology, so things such as its color or transparency as well as its size and circularity, and pair that with a targeted Raman spectroscopy analysis. And then that combines both the morphological features with the chemical identification, which potentially will provide more information about a soil sample or any sample than would be uh, obtained from either method individually. For example, instead of just getting an overall particle size distribution, we can now with this tool get a particle size distribution by each mineral individually without having to do a physical separation. So my research is evaluating the use of particle-correlated Raman spectroscopy for forensic soil analysis. Uh, I have a number of students uh, working on this project. My first two graduate students graduated a, a year ago. One is in law school. Uh, she found a different passion in the criminal justice system. And so she's uh, doing great in law school. And my other student is actually now at a, uh, uh, a company that uses particle uh, identification for pharmaceutical identification. Uh, so kind of a forensic investigation in the pharmaceutical industry. But for most of my students, they are going to stay in the forensic science. Well, our program has been also very fortunate to receive funding from NIJ in various areas of forensic science, which are great benefits to our students and collaborators across the state and federal agencies and private sectors in the criminal justice system as a whole. In my particular area of trace evidence, uh, we are working in three major projects. One of them has to do with um, gunter residues. So those are residues that are left behind when a fire is uh, fired. And often uh, we can collect those residues from different areas um, and surfaces, but the most common is the hands of the person of interest, the, per the person that is suspected to have been handling the fire. So the methods that we have developed are screening tools that are not available in the field. Uh, we have an uh, excellent consensus base with a lot of scientific foundation methods called SEM-EDS. And it's a long name, but really what is great about that methodology is that it has the capability to look at particles that are as small as less than one micron in size. So the morphology of that particle and the chemical composition can really provide a good confirmation that those particles originated from a fire uh, rather than other environmental residues and traces. But it's the only method that is used in the forensic laboratory. And even though it's great, it is time consuming it, per sample. And sometimes we have multiple samples in a case. So you know, turnaround times are a little bit complex in that area. So what we have been working in the past years is, is developing methods that can be used in the front end uh, at the crime scene, portable instrumentation that can provide very quick um, response time. So we have developed methods that use a laser beam that is very small. So these are called LIPS or laser induced breakdown spectroscopy. And those allow us to detect in 60 seconds or less uh, the elemental profiles of gunshot residues collected from the hand. And what we do to complement LIPS, because it's not as confirmatory as SEM-EDS, because we cannot see the morphology component, 
is that we have coupled lips uh, with another technology that is called electrochemistry that use disposable sensors that are about a centimeter long and they can be attached to apparatus that is as small as an iPhone. And so with electrochemistry, we can detect inorganic and organic compounds that are present in the residues. So when we combine LIPS with electrochemistry, we can do the analysis in a single sample in less than three minutes, and we can achieve accuracies over 90%, which is great for a screening tool. So you can put these ones in the front end of your workflow to make better decisions at the crime scene and what to submit at the laboratory. And you can use them at the laboratory also to make more informed decisions and kind of triage the number of samples that are going to be included in your case um, and only confirm those that are necessary. So our hope is that this technology can really uh, bring down the time of response in this type of investigations. Another of the projects that we are being working on is uh, what we call fracture fits. Um, so there are many materials that fracture or separate in a crime. Let's take an example of duct tape, right? That is used a lot for gagging or binding victims or in, in explosives, improvised explosive devices. So when a piece of tape is broken from the roll, there are possibilities that the edges, uh, you can find the roll and you can find the piece that was broken in the victim or in the suspect. And you can kind of compare them together. And you can think about it like putting a puzzle together. So physical fits can become very valuable in an investigation because they have a high probative value because there is a common belief that it is very unlikely that two pieces will fit back together with distinctive characteristics just by chance. However, regardless of the probative value that this has, there are very few scientific foundations that demonstrate this principle. So one of our research has to do with that. We are doing uh, empirical experiments and very, very large databases of thousands of these types of materials, tapes, textiles, uh, plastics that are often found in crime scenes, uh, physical feeds. And we are developing first uh, methods that are systematic for doing that quantification um, and providing not only the opinion, yes, they look like they fit, but we are also providing a, a method that can quantify the quality of the fit, right? Is it 90%? Is it 80%? Is it 60%? And if so, what that means. So we are helping in building up that scientific validity. And the last project that we are working with has to do with microscopic amounts of glass and trays that can be uh, glass and paint that can be transferred during different types of scenarios like hit and runs, break and entries. And, and we're working on the interpretation aspect. So one of the things that are very necessary to use quantitative likelihood ratios and interpretations in this type of evidence is having background knowledge of, you know, how common is to find these traces in the regular population. And there has been a large body of knowledge that is what we use in, in our field, but has been done mainly outside of the United States, in Europe, in Australia, in other countries and continents that do not necessarily reflect the reality and socioeconomical aspects of the United States. So we're building those background databases in the United States in a collaborative project with some Houston State University. So we are evaluating those uh, backgrounds in small cities, big cities with different geographical and socioeconomical realities here in the United States.
Very cool. You guys are working on a lot of a lot of different really cool projects. In your experience, do you find that students that participate in these research projects with you, are they more likely to pursue graduate studies or go on to continue with research? What do the career trajectories look like for students that are engaged in this research from the get-go? Generally, when a student, uh, an undergraduate student does research with me, it, it does generally lead to graduate education. Uh, so, and it might not be in forensic science. So I have students who are going to medical school next year because they want to be pathologists. I try to teach students good research and problem solving and skills that will make them good scientists, be it if they're going to be in, in research labs or in, in practitioner labs or becoming lawyers, you know, having a good forensic education, I think is, is useful there as well. But most of my students do, uh, undergraduate students do continue on for master's or PhD programs. Um, and if they're lucky, they get to learn from someone like Tatiana. Thank you. Yes, in my, in my case, I, I agree with you, Brooke. Research is fostering that creative problem solving. Um, so I definitely think that students that do research, whether or not they decide to stay later on for grad school, like leave the program with a different set of skills that prepare them better to do that problem solving or, or to get like even those soft skills that you learn uh, when you do research, like teamwork and leaderships and sometimes uh, learning how to take orders and sometimes learning how to speak up and how to do, you know, documentation and research and what to do when you don't get what you want, right? They learn a lot of skills that are analytical and important for their workplace in the laboratory or later on in research. They also learn the day-to-day skills on how to solve problems and how you think outside the box. How do you know when you hit the wall? And you need to take another direction. William Barrett wrote this book uh, called The Illusion of Technique. And in it, he describes the difference between a technician and a scientist. And he says a technician is someone who knows how to follow a method, whereas a scientist is someone who knows what to do when the method doesn't work. So they know how to problem solve and develop new methods. So I really pride myself in teaching my students to become forensic scientists and not forensic technicians. And I think research is really the uh, ideal place to, to make that happen. You both and your students are involved in all of these these amazing projects, and I'm, I'm sure it takes a lot of time. What are the outcomes of those? Are your students going to conferences, becoming parts of professional organizations? Uh, are you working with your local, state, and federal agencies to transition these technologies into practice? The ultimate outcome for me, University of New Haven is a teaching institute, so it's not a uh, research-focused university. So really, my number one outcome is my students leaving better scientists. So that's the most important thing to me. Second to that is publications, as it would be, right, is adding to the body of knowledge of forensic science. And, and that is incredibly rewarding. So through professional presentations or publications, I encourage all of my students to present. Um, and I, uh, I'm very involved at Eastern Analytical Symposium and with the Society for Applied Spectroscopy. So through those organizations in the analytical chemistry community, but as well as with my regional organizations, so Northeastern Association of Forensic Scientists and the American Academy, the students uh, generally present their research. I, I really encourage them to do that. 
So uh, I work very closely with collaborators in a variety of different agencies, from state crime labs to federal agencies. I feel as an academic, I haven't worked in a crime lab. I I have done consulting um, with Dr. Peter DeForest, but I haven't worked in a crime lab. And I think not having that practical day-to-day experience, I try to supplement that with partnering with practitioners as much as possible. Uh, A lot of my research, uh, not involving trace evidence, but involving portable instruments. So I'm very involved with the portable instrumentation. And that has been very exciting to see various libraries my students and I have built or applications being utilized. And and that's very exciting. Uh, So um, I have a project now where we're building a fentanyl analog library on a portable GCMS instrument, and we are going to be deploying it to the Marines this summer. So it's very exciting that something my students are building is going to be actually used in military forensics. That's excellent. And Tatiana, what about the research that you guys are doing? So I agree. Like, I think one of the most important things is uh, making sure our students get exposed as much as possible, that they build their own career uh, and networking is quite important. So I think the the forensic practitioner inside of me is always dragging this project to actual applications, things that eventually can be applied. And I understand as being part of the system, that doesn't take a year or two. It may take five years, six years, seven years um, to get there. But uh, there is nothing more rewarding to see that final stage when an idea becomes a research and that research became an, an application that is useful and is helping the services on, on our criminal justice system. So uh, something that I try to do in every project is to have very early on, even in the, in the design of the experiments, uh, to have feedback with um, practitioners, crime laboratories and different agencies and have the students be involved in that process. And I think that changes completely their perspective of why they are doing things. You know, what are the relevant things and what are they competing against instead of, you know, what are the challenges, what are the technology that that is used instead of what is needed out there. So trying to keep them like very aware all the time of literature. Something I, I encourage them is, you know, don't let two or three weeks pass by without you reading a new paper in your field so that you are aware of what is going on, what are the challenges, uh, what are new technologies that have been proposed uh, to make our science better. And in that process of collaboration with the different laboratories and agencies, um, they learn a lot. Uh, Learning from that feedback and critical process um, that takes into account when you propose an idea and you know that most of the time you'll find resistance from the community, but then how you can demonstrate and provide and minimize that resistance by by letting them know the value. Uh, Because otherwise, if you don't do that early in the process of the research, it's going to be more difficult to adopt the technology later on. So in terms of outcomes for our grad students' publications is very important. Being exposed to rigorous peer review processes. So understanding that when they publish, they they have gone through that consensus based on the quality of what they are publishing is worth to be sharing with the rest of the community and building that sense of responsibility when you publish something. And and of course, uh, networking and presentation and scientific meetings, I think that's a great way of, of learning from other colleagues and 
you know, a rewarding experience for them to be able to share what they have been doing, to share and, you know, be proud of what they have been working very hard (laughs) during the preparation of a poster or a presentation. That is a perfect note to end on. And so I'd like to thank you both, Brooke and Tatiana, for taking the time to chat with me and for joining us on the podcast to talk about forensic science and research and all the all the fun things that we do. Thank you, Gabby. Thank you so much. If you enjoyed today's episode, be sure to like and follow Just Science on your podcast platform of choice. For more information on today's topic and resources in the forensics field, visit ForensicsCOE.org. I'm Gabby Diema, and this has been another episode of Just Science. Next week, Just Science sits down with Dr. Karen Scott and Dr. Jared Wagner to discuss forensic toxicology education and careers. Opinions or points of views expressed in this podcast represent the consensus of the authors and do not necessarily represent the official position or policies of its funding. 